0: Let us pray, Father. For do you have revealed yourself, and you have revealed your Son and your Word? You have given us your holy Scriptures that we may know, love, and serve you; that we may be saved. Father, I pray that you would grant us to be thankful and appreciative for this gift, that we would not despise it, but Lord, that we would, by your spirit, receive what you have for us. So make us humble and receptive and give us life, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We returned to Philippians chapter three. Last week, we considered the opening few verses, Paul's warning to look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's been urging them to rejoice in the Lord and beware of those who would take away their joy in the Lord, specifically the Judaizers who were going around saying faith in Christ is not sufficient. You also need to be circumcised. You also need to observe these food laws. You also need to observe a few other Old Testament uh, Jewish distinctives. And Paul has said, you don't need that. You and me, we together, are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. In the next few verses, Paul is going to now um, say something a bit unexpected. He begins verse 4 by saying, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. That's a bit surprising. We put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to immediately say, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. What's going on here? A bit. Boastful, perhaps, it seems to us. What we need to understand is Paul is anticipating a potential objection from his opponents or those who sympathize with them. And we might categorize that objection under the heading of a logical fallacy C.S. Lewis has called bulverism. Bulverism is not uncommon. We might see it more often than we'd wish in our own day. Certainly online. Online or in the media, or social media. Bolivarism is a logical fallacy where you give the appearance of refuting your opponent's position simply by asserting where that position came from or what motivated them to hold that position. For example, a friend of yours might tell you, you know, if you want to be healthy, you should really diet and exercise. Then you might reply and say, oh, well, you're just saying that because you enjoy physical activities like hiking, biking, and sports, and you're a picky eater, so you don't like unhealthy food anyway, so of course you would think that diet and exercise lead to health. That sounds like a pretty good argument, but C.S. Lewis points out this is actually a logical fallacy for a couple of reasons. First of all, it may be the case that you're wrong. You're kind of just asserting what the motive is for, you know, why they came to hold that view, but it's actually pretty speculative. You're just saying, here's why you hold to it, but maybe that's not actually why. That could be why, but it might not be the only reason. So first off, you may be wrong. You're just making an assertion. Second off, let's assume for a second you are correct. Let's assume that really the only reason your friend thinks diet and exercise lead to health is because he's a picky eater and likes physical activities, so he's biased. At most, that would suggest that your friend doesn't have very good reasons for his beliefs. But does it mean that the position he holds to is wrong? Have you disproved what he's saying by simply talking about why he holds to it? No, you have not. You've not actually engaged the position itself— You've just speculated on the psychology and motivations of your opponent. You've, in fact, assumed that the position is wrong and then proceeded to explain why they hold to it. But you haven't actually shown that it is wrong. So Bolvarism is a logical fallacy, but it doesn't mean it's not rhetorically effective. It sounds plausible. It sounds compelling, even though it doesn't really work out logically. Of course, I gave an example just now where it's obvious to all of us that diet and exercise do lead to health. So you can see how it can be a logical fallacy, but it's not always so clear. You hear it whenever you hear things like, oh, you just think that because you're a man. You just think that because you're a woman. You just think that because you're rich. You just think that because you're poor. You just think that because you're old. You just think that because you're young. On and on you could go. And here in Philippians 3 verses 4 onwards, Paul is anticipating a kind of bulveristic objection that might be raised against what he has just said. The, the Judaizers might hear arguments like the ones that Paul just made. And say, ah, yes, well, of course, you'll go around telling a bunch of Gentiles that they don't really need circumcision, that it's not necessary, that you don't have to obey the food laws, the unclean, clean food distinction and other boundary markers of the Old Testament law. Yes, some will say you don't have to follow those. But, you know, they're just saying that because they're not Jewish. They've never lived this way. They've never had these benefits. And so they're just jealous or insecure because they've never really obeyed this or had these. So they're just really, you know, biased Philippians when they tell you, you don't need to put confidence in these things or do these things. And Paul's response to that is to say, that's not me. That doesn't hold in my case. He meets his opponents on their own turf, as it were, and says, if we're going to play the game, of looking toward and comparing our own uh, strengths and benefits and advantages, if we're playing the flesh game, I can play that too and I can win. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, like these Judaizers, I have more. And this will launch Paul in verses four to 17, really all the way to verse 17, to put himself forward as an example to the Philippians. Philippians. He's putting himself forward as an example to the Philippians, and he's saying, look, I have had what the, Judaizers, what the Judaizers want you to have, what they say you need to have. I've gone down that road before, and I went further down it than they have, and I found it to be a dead end. Paul is trying to secure the Philippians joy and confidence in Christ by warning them away from putting any confidence in the flesh and points to his own example. In these verses, the central tension is that expressed at the end of verse three. Are you going to glory in Christ Jesus or are you going to put confidence in the flesh? So that's the question for us this morning. Christ or the flesh? Which are you going to glory in? Now, when we hear the word flesh, we might first think of our our skin, the meat on our bones. And that is one meaning of the word flesh, the most literal meaning. But as you read the New Testament, you see the word flesh can be used in a number of ways. It can also be used to refer to all creatures. So in Luke's gospel, chapter three, verse six, we read all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Flesh can also refer to our sinful nature, which we all inherit from our forefather Adam. So Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 7: The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In that passage, the word flesh is referring to something broader than um, just our, you know, our, our physical skin or Uh, Just referring to all creatures like in Luke chapter 3. Here flesh is encompassing all outward advantages, all outward excellences, all outward strengths, benefits that we have and which we might be inclined to boast in. And Paul goes on to describe these grounds for boasting in the flesh in verses 5 through 6. He begins with circumcision in verse 5. He says, He was circumcised on the eighth day. The Judaizers want you to be circumcised? I've been circumcised. And not like a Gentile convert. I was circumcised on the proper day, according to the Old Testament law. The eighth day. He moves on to discuss his lineage and birth. Paul is, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul is not a Gentile. He is a Jewish man. He's able to trace his tribal lineage to the tribe of Benjamin. The only tribe that joined with Judah in being loyal to the Davidic covenant after the kingdom divided. And in whose territory was found the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple. His lineage is pure. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. In verse 5, Paul says... As to the law, a Pharisee. We're familiar with the Pharisees. We read of them throughout the Gospels. Uh, They were a group of influential religious leaders, interpreters of the Old Testament law, and stewards of the many human traditions that were put in place ostensibly to uphold it. Paul was one of them. He was a Pharisee. When you read um, Jesus going against the Pharisees in the Gospels, Paul was one of them. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, in Acts 25, verse 6, Paul refers to it as the strictest party of our religion. The Pharisees were so eager about upholding the law of God, they didn't even want you to get close to possibly, obeying, uh, to possibly disobeying it, so they'd make even stricter laws of their own and enforce them on all the people so that they wouldn't even get too close. And Paul was one of them. He goes on and says, as to zeal, okay, let's talk about zeal. I was a persecutor of the church. In Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says that in his former life, he was zealous for God. And we need to understand that about Paul. Paul didn't view himself as a wicked man. Back when he was a Pharisee, back when he was holding the garments of those stoning Stephen... And binding Christians and throwing them into prison. He wasn't thinking to himself, this is so wrong what I'm doing, but I love it anyway. No, he thought he was doing a good thing. Jesus says in John 16 verse 2, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That was Paul. Paul. Paul thought he was offering service to God. He thought he was putting down false teachers and idolaters. He thought he was promoting the purity of God's people and upholding God's law. He thought he was like Phineas, who in his great zeal for the Lord, pierced through the idolatrous Israelite and the Midianite in Numbers 25. He stood in line with the righteous who would not Abide by idolatry, but took up arms, even violent arms, to put it down. And that's what he was doing in his own mind. He had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He goes on. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. This sums up all his moral accomplishments that he has discussed so far. He's saying He had the sort of righteousness, the sort of law righteousness that the Judaizers are looking for. According to their interpretation and their standards of what it means to follow it, he was blameless. He met that. He behaved in ways as a Pharisee that his opponents would have regarded as blameless. So Paul's saying in all of this that if these Judaizers think they have reason to be confident of their right standing before God due to these fleshly matters, Paul once had all of that and more. He had an impeccable lineage. He received the mark of circumcision on the right day. He lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of law observance. He was an incredibly zealous man, resorting even to violence. In his great zeal for God. And he was blameless as to law righteousness that they hold in esteem. Paul was in a position that was every bit superior to these Judaizers, with even greater law abidance, even greater Jewishness, even greater zeal. And what did Paul do? What did he do with all these benefits, accomplishments, and privileges? All these advantages, all these great gains. Verses seven to nine. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Something fundamental happened. Something revolutionary happened. Paul's world was turned completely upside down. All those things that he once counted as a great privilege and benefit, he came to regard as detriment and loss. What once was gain has now become loss for Paul. It's as though he he pulls out his ledger, his bank statement, and what he once put on the credit side of the ledger, he now moves over to the debit side. Side of the ledger. We need to understand how remarkable this is. Paul is saying that being circumcised on the eighth day is loss. His impeccable Hebrew lineage is loss. His great zeal is loss. His blamelessness and law abidance is loss. Why is it that these things are now in the loss category for Paul? How is it that now he regards them as mere rubbish? according to verse 8 we might think of the story of jonah jonah chapter 1 the sailors set out to sea and as they set out they have mart they have much cargo with them precious cargo which would have brought them gain if they held on to it the cargo was profitable and advantageous to them as merchants but what happens when the lord sends the storm and the waves are threatening to break up the ship. What's happening to that cargo? What once was gained to these sailors has now become loss. They are now throwing it overboard as though it's so much rubbish. Why? Because now that cargo has become detrimental to them. It's weighing them down and threatening their lives, And the worth of their own lives surpasses the worth of the goods the ship now carries. Why does Paul count all things as loss? He says in verse 7, for the sake of Christ. Or verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul has encountered something, or rather someone whose worth so far exceeds everything else, that everything else can now only be regarded as loss. Not only that, but Paul came to see that all of his privileges and moral accomplishments had proven to be uh, means of him trusting in himself rather than in Jesus. And so they, in fact, became obstacles to him accepting Jesus He came to rest content in his status as a circumcised Jew and as a zealous Pharisee rather than resting upon the perfect righteousness of Christ offered to him. All of these benefits that he had were like precious cargo weighing down Paul's ship in a sea of self-righteousness. But when he came to know Christ, he threw all of that overboard. As verses 8 and 9 say, Paul gladly suffered the loss of all things, that he may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you want to be righteous in the sight of God? Do you want to be viewed by the Almighty as without sin and without fault before him? Here's what you should do. Flee all attempts at self-righteousness. Cast away all notions of your possessing a righteousness of your own that comes from law abidance. Instead, put your faith in Christ. Because when you do that, by the power of the Spirit, you are united to Christ. And then you are, as he says, found in him. Then you receive the righteousness from God That depends on faith, not your works. This passage urges us to ask, what things in your life are keeping you from the Lord Jesus? What advantages do you have? What privileges do you have? What status do you have? What accomplishments have you made that cause you to trust in them and somehow in your own goodness or worthiness rather than on the Lord Jesus? The temptation is very subtle because these can be good things. It's not wrong for Paul to have been born a Hebrew or of the tribe of Benjamin or to have been circumcised on the eighth day. What's wrong is to come to trust upon these statuses or these accomplishments as what makes us acceptable to God and superior to others. And yet, as the Lord Jesus emptied himself of the rights and prerogatives of divine glory for us and for our salvation, so the Apostle Paul emptied himself of his rights and prerogatives of the flesh so that he might gain Christ. Are we willing to so empty ourselves to give up our rights and prerogatives and status and privileges, accomplishments, should they come in the way of knowing Jesus? Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's like a pearl of great value, which when you find it in the market, you go and sell all that you have to buy it. Paul speaks here of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's speaking here about knowing Jesus The surpassing worth of that. Not just knowing about Jesus. This is not a mere factual or notional knowledge that Paul is discussing. He's talking about knowing Jesus like a son or daughter knows their father or mother. Or like how a wife knows her husband. Paul is talking about knowing Christ experientially. To be able to call him not just the Lord, but my Lord. Christ Jesus, my Lord, to know Jesus, not just as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but as the lamb of God who takes away your sin. You particularly to know him, not just as the one who died for sinners, but but as the one who died for you to know him, not just as the Lord of all creation, but as your Lord. To know not just that he is faithful in general or loving in general, but to know his faithfulness and love towards you. As Paul writes in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What won't you part with to gain such a Christ, this great Lamb of God who takes away sin? The great Son of God who came from realms of glory to this earth to bear your sin and reconcile you to the Father, to deliver you from your misery and your deserved condemnation, to bear it himself on the cross and rise triumphant from the dead, bringing you into his eternal kingdom by his merits, by his righteousness and not Yours. May each of us say with Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To know him is eternal life. And that life begins now. To be sure on this side of glory, that life that we taste is mixed with sorrow and marred by sin. There's sin and unbelief in our hearts, and this can cause us grief and sorrow. But at the same time, within us God has planted his seed of faith, a seed of the Spirit. And sometimes it does feel like a seed. It doesn't feel like a surging force of energy all the time. Sometimes faith it's like it just it's just like the grain of a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. And yet even this seed faith has the power to move mountains. The righteousness from God depends on faith, Paul says. Not that it is based upon the quality of your faith, but on the content of your faith, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. If you have no righteousness of your own, do not despair. God has provided you with a righteousness in Christ. So trust in him. Place your confidence in him. Glory in him. And in Him alone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that we are found in you by faith. We confess that you are the supreme treasure, the one that we were made to know and love. We thank you that you have shown your great love for us and that you came and died for our sins. We praise you that you've been raised for our justification. Grant that we would turn away from trusting in ourselves in our own merits, our own works, our status our privileges, that we would turn from these things and trust only ever in you and know the joy of knowing you. Lord, we pray this and we, and we ask that all glory would be given to you with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.